right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo. We're at episode 262. It is Wednesday, November 10th. Um, getting excited for the holidays, getting excited for the end of year push, the, year, the time of the year where we can really make our uh, accelerators, our extra commission. This is the show where young salespeople come to get to the next level of their career, find the next job. Uh, close more deals, get the promotion, whatever it might be. That's what we're here to do and we're here to help with. Um, got a great episode today. Got Wayne Morris coming on. Uh, he is uh, formerly the quote-unquote donut boy. We'll get to that. Um, turned two-time CRO. He's a sales leader. He's uh, you know, been a sales leader at, at multiple different companies, two-time CRO, four-time sales leader. Uh, you know, really well-renowned consultant in the SaaS world. And he gets into some great stories with us today, talking about uh, door-to-door sales in Australia, talking about the mindset shift that he made. Uh, you know, very similar to last week when I talked to Kara Feldman of going from, you know, kind of this, you know, wishy-washy mentality or this failure uh, mentality and this failure state to it's like the light switch goes off and makes a complete mental shift and it completely changes the trajectory of his career and his life. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Before we get to that, let's do two shout outs. First of all, for this podcast, um, I appreciate you listening. It's a free podcast, but if you could just show some love wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it might be, if you just hit the subscribe button. If you are an Apple, if you leave a five-star review, all that stuff should take you 30 seconds, but it really does make an impact on the success of this show and who we can get on and, and the reach of trying to help other people. So I appreciate you. I'm Tom Alamo on LinkedIn, Tommy Tahoe on Instagram and Twitter. You can reach out and check me out there as well. Um, the, the sponsor of this podcast is Postal.io. Postal helps create curated marketing experiences. Uh, essentially, they help you bridge the gap with the relationship with your customers through uh, the different gifts that you can send them, right? So uh, it could be as simple as a Starbucks gift card, help kind of break the ice on an intro call. It could be something as la- lavish as a you know wine tasting with all of your key prospects, right? You could send them a bottle of wine from the local winery. You could send them something from the local florist. It is in the remote world where we're not taking clients out uh, as much or, or maybe not at all. It's the great way to bridge the gap and create a great relationship with your customers. So highly recommend checking them out at postal.io. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Wayne. Let's go. All right. Now on to the Millennial Sales Podcast. We got the former quote unquote donut boy uh, to the two-time CRO, four-time sales leader, and current strategic advisor in the SaaS world, Wayne Morris. Wayne, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. It's a real pleasure to finally get on your show. I've listened to a lot of them, and uh, yeah, it's a real privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, first, first things first, we'll shout out DZ uh, for the intro, um, a mutual friend of ours, and uh, another listener of the show, actual creator of the original podcast artwork. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but he, uh, that's how we met. Um, and he helped me out with some of the artwork and we became friends for the last few years. Yeah. He's, he's a great guy, DZ big fan. Um, so we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, Wayne, before we get into all of the different things from, from your sales career and, and what you're doing today, 
Every time I see you post on LinkedIn, I see the donut emoji pop up. That's like the, that's like your trademark now. So like t- talk to me and talk to the guests, like what does donut boy mean? Were you selling donuts or you were like the intern that got donuts? What was that all about? <laughs> yeah. A lot of people, it's funny. So many people comment on that headline on, on LinkedIn and most people get it wrong. And the people that get it wrong, I know, haven't like dug deep. They're just like the surface level dudes. Yeah. Uh, and they assume I used to sell donuts. I never, I've never sold a donut in my life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for anyone that's in sales uh, and is used to some sales slang, they'll understand that if you land a donut, that means you have done no deals, you have no revenue on the board, you have a big fat uh... zero on the board, which is what the donut looks like uh, on my profile. So, um, I, one of my very first experiences in sales was uh, an unmitigated disaster for the first two weeks. It was a really rough experience. Uh, and I would literally come back into the office each day. It was an MLM, uh, multi-level marketing play, 100% commission knocking on doors. And yeah, you know, Wayne, have you got any sales today? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, next day, Wayne, you have any sales? No, I haven't. And then after a while, it was like, okay, here comes Donut Boy. Um, and that was... <laughs> And yeah, that was, that was my, that was pretty much my initiation into sales. Um, and yeah, I got a little bit better from that point, but those first two weeks were, I looked very deep into my soul, uh, and one way or another, I figured it out, but that's how I got the nickname. Donut boy. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I want to cover some ground on the door to door sales, but before we get there, I saw, you know, somewhere in your profile, I think you mentioned that you were, you came from a military family, I think first Mm -hmm. in your family to go to university. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that probably leads us to why you got into sales. I'd hate to be assumptive, but everyone seems to have a pretty interesting sales story. It's not what you probably grow up wanting to be or aspiring to be, or even know that it exists. Um, And a lot of us get in, in, you know, difficult or or weird circumstances. So what were, Mm -hmm. what was kind of like the leading point to you getting uh, into the sales world? Yeah, so you're correct. I, I come from a military family back in the UK. Um, so we're you know low income and you know money was uh, it, it never felt difficult to come by as a kid, but it was clearly clearly obvious it was. My parents were making really big sacrifices, and as I got older, I, I saw that more and more. We had you know less than other kids have, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and before long, I equated having money to having freedom. And, um, and I was really motivated to make money in order to have the freedom that my, you know, it's clear that my parents weren't clearly afforded. Um, and I, that was compounded in my first job in London when uh, it was a marketing job at a company called Reuters uh, and the, the company would sell trading platforms into city traders in London. It was compounded there because I realized that the sales guys made all the money. And um, and I realized that they drove the fast cars, they wore the nicest suits and they you know had the nicest meals. And um, to be frank, I wanted a piece of that action. I, you know, that's what, you know, I looked at that and I was like, I'd like that. That looks pretty good. Um, so uh, I worked. I worked really hard in my first six months in that job uh, in marketing um, to afford myself the opportunity to spend a bit more time with the sales guys. 
And when I spent a little bit more time with the sales guys, I realized that I really enjoyed what they were doing, which was going out and meeting customers in the city and convincing them that the product that they were selling was something that they needed. And, and that, was, uh, that was my, um, that was kind of my first introduction to sales before the knocking on doors in Australia. Uh, and you know what I realized was this is back in '98 is that these guys were earning a hundred thousand pounds, like a hundred in that in those days that'd have been two hundred thousand dollars, but like in today's money, like a hundred thirty thousand dollars. But 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 back in 1998, so mm. I maybe equates to like half a million dollars plus at this point mm. in time, and um, it seemed achievable, and to me it seemed like a really smart way to game the system to go from nothing to something really quickly. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I just equated cash to freedom and I wanted the, I wanted to find the fastest route to make the most money possible and sales there just didn't, I, I couldn't see any other way there that made sense. I could go study law for four years. I could, you know, go off and do something else for a, a number of years, but I wanted to get there really, really quickly. Um, and I, um, I felt like sales was the great leveler. And if I could prove that I could sell a product, uh, then I, my pitch would be simple. It'd be like, Hey, look, I'm a, I'm a money machine. I literally make you a load of cash and you're going to have to pay me in return for that. It was a pretty straightforward quid pro quo setup was, was my interpretation of sales. I just wanted a piece of that action. So for a very long time, that was how I thought. I just thought I just want to, you know, get, I want to get into sales. I want to prove myself. And I just want to sell bigger and bigger deals. Um, so that, you know, that was, um, yeah, that it was my way of breaking out of how I had grown up uh, in a low income family. And so you get into this multi-level marketing situation in Australia, going door to door, hundred percent commission. You're the donut boy. You're racking up zeros pretty frequently. Um, and you know what? Twenty-one ish years later, we're talking here, and you've been a, a two-time uh, CRO. You've been a sales leader at a bunch of different companies. You're advising, you know, some of the the, the fastest-growing companies in the world. So what was like? What was that turning point for you that early in your career? That you know, a lot of donut boys probably end up going to do a completely different job. They don't make it in sales. They don't stick with it. So what was it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, there's a number of things. Um, first was just pride. I mean, you know, no one likes having a moniker of something that's really negative hung around their neck, and certainly not me. Uh, yeah. so that needed, that needed to be removed. Uh, so there's one of two things you can do. You can run away from that and you can make excuses, uh, or you can you know, buckle, buckle up, buckle down and just get on with it. Um, and that's what I did. So firstly it was pride. And then in order to like get on with it, you have to have some grit and determination. And I knew I was never sure of that. I mean, there was, you know, something I've always had is this desire to succeed and, this desire to go the extra mile to succeed. And I still have that today. And I, I feel, I feel blessed to have been born with that. Um, so I think there are some innate things that you just have as an individual. Um, I think that sales guys have the good, the good ones have as you know, they're either born with or they develop or they have bosses that encourage them to lean into it. And I certainly had that. 
Um, I think the um, I think the biggest thing uh, beyond that was just an inquisitiveness to figure out what it was I was doing wrong, because everyone was operating off scripts, and everyone was going to the door running these. They, no one was knocking on more doors than me. There wasn't a volume issue. It was something else. And I was just intrigued. I mean, like part of me self-reflected and was like, how am I so shit at this? Like, this is like, what the fuck? I look at myself in the mirror and be like, what? how am I so shit? I have never been so shit at anything in all my life. <laughs> and I am terrible at this. And so there was some level of intrigue, you know, some kind of perverse intrigue. Um, and then, And then I got to work. And then I really got to work. I then said, right. I'm going to figure this out. So the first thing I did was I hated the scripts. The scripts meant they, they were just such BS, man. I was like, this is maybe they work for you. But like the conclusion I came to is they just don't work for me. Yep. And, it, and, and what do I have to lose at this point? Like at this point, they, you know, you're supposed to religiously follow the, these scripts. At this point, like I have nothing to lose. Like I've tried following the scripts. I've tried doing what everyone else does. For whatever reason, it doesn't doesn't work for me. So maybe I'm different. And because I'm different, like I'm gonna have to operate differently. Uh, so um, so I did. I literally went completely off piece and I just I thought around the subject with my own brain. Um, and the first thing I thought was like, what is this product really? And who does it you know? how does it provide value and it was telecom it was anyone that made telephone calls internationally if you use this product you would reduce your call rate significantly so the first thing i did was like look at the product and figure out whether i believed it or not and i did and then i subscribed to it myself in my own rented home in sydney australia and i used it myself to call home and i looked at my phone bills and i was like yeah okay this is this is legit but only if I make a whole load of calls. So I was pretty clear that actually I was the ideal customer profile. So then it was like, okay, so if it works for me, it can work for others. I need to go find people that are in a somewhat similar position to me and make a good amount of international calls. There's Australia as you know, former British colony. There's going to be a lot of people back in the UK they're calling, but also New Zealand and, and, and other places. So I got into the mind's eye of my buying audience for the very first time. Prior, I'd just been selling the product. Um, but now what I was doing was figuring out how I could provision value to that buyer by illustrating to them uh, that um, clearly, like whether they, whether, whether it was, whether it made sense to them or it didn't. And it was a really important shift because I now knew uh, before, Prior, I was just trying to sell to everybody. But the big shift now was I wasn't trying to sell to everybody. The mm. big shift now was I knew who this was relevant for. And I had to go find out a lot about my about the person on the door before I tried to sell them something. It was an it was an it was a small but absolutely pivotal shift in the psychology of the way in which I approached the door and the content of the conversation that I would have with the buyer. Um, so, so now I would approach the door, uh, and once I'd made someone comfortable, uh, which obviously has to happen in kind of milliseconds, 
I was really in question mode. You know, is this is this relevant for you? And I had to find out a lot about them and they got talking and I just shut up. Um, so um, that for me is something that has stuck with me to this day. Uh, it's really got nothing to do with you when you're out selling. It literally has nothing to do with you. Hmm. If you can and, and if you can provision value, you have a shot. Um, but the only way you know if you can provision value is if you can understand what's on the other side of the table. Uh, so um, once I'd figured that out, it was just a breeze and actually became enjoyable. I, I broke all records in, in New South Wales. I made a load of cash. It was literally <laughs> night and day, literally night and day. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, I've not, I've not looked back from that point, but I hear a lot of people don't put, do you, I mean, do you put, you did, you did some MLM stuff. Do you, do you still have it on your resume? Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's on yeah. my LinkedIn. It's on my, on my resume. I, I don't think I would be where I am as a salesperson without that experience personally. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. But I hear a lot of people that just don't want to talk about it, take it off their resume. And I'm like, what like i could talk to you for ages about that like you, you we should be talking about that stuff and to yeah. me even now like 20 plus years on i'm certain that the lessons that i learned on those doors i'm still using today yeah absolutely 100%. and that's that's the thing that i when i uh you know mentor people that are you know in college or want to transition to sales or maybe they're you know uh family members or something um I always recommend the first step being uh, something like that. Like I did Cutco. A lot of listeners know that. You know, I think Enterprise Rent a Car has a really good uh, like mm -hmm. sales training. I think some people do like vacuum cleaners or, or things like. There's a lot. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but that type of experience I think is unquestionably really helpful. I've had a, a lot of guests on the podcast just so happened to have done some sort of multi-level marketing, you know, knocking mm -hmm. on the door, you know, that type of, of environment as their first sales job. And, um, you know, they, they all credit, you know, some of their success to that. So I think there's something to be said about it for sure. Yeah. And some of the best sales people, um, or some of the best sales trained, um, people out there, I think came from the printing world, like mm -hmm. Canon, Epson, those guys, yeah, uh, they yeah. they used to have a really strong training program. Xerox. Really str yeah, Xerox, those guys. Um, you know, literally, you know, you're going into offices and you're selling like hardware print printers, you know. Yeah. And you know, that that's not that I'm sure they were getting paid a salary, but that's you can see why you need to have really solid training there. And this is a tangent and we're shooting forwards now, but when I see uh incredible product-led growth companies emerging in SaaS. One thing that really kills me is, you know, you've got this incredible product-led growth com company. You have SDRs who are taking the leads from marketing and really giving salespeople a layup. It's like a tap-in. And part of me is like, dude, <laughs> what, dude what, what have you actually got to do at this point? You know, relative, <laughs> you know, relative to, I know that they have to do a good amount, but you know, relative to, I guess, what some of the old school sales guys had to do. Um, it's really very different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I think nowadays sales is so, there's so many different like types of roles too. And at different companies that, I mean, I don't know what it was like 20 years ago, uh, but it, it just feels like it's really hard to say, it's hard to compare roles between different companies, right? Like you've got, mm -hmm. you know, one of my pet peeves that I see, maybe this is just me, but I see like director, people have like director of sales titles. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, you know, how many people do you, do you manage? And they're like, oh, no, I just, I rep account, you know, I'm, I'm just a rep. They're like, okay, yeah. so you're, you're an AE, you know, or whatever yeah. it might be. Um, it's just not transferable to every company. Um, and like you say, some companies are, it's a layup to sell, but maybe you have to sell a huge volume or some, it's just, you're the first rep and it's an absolute grind. But if you can get like one or two in the door, then you hit your number and it's, it's really, I feel like that's probably something really challenging with hiring salespeople is that the, the, the history is, can be probably pretty foggy, but you almost have to hire a lot on characteristics of people in my opinion, right? Like their, their grit that you mentioned earlier, their coachability, their intelligence, things like that. Yeah. I mean, those soft skills, uh, I guess you'd call those soft skills, um, and their EQ, uh, absolutely critical uh in any um in any sales hire you know without that stuff I, I just don't know how you get i don't know how you you can succeed the um what's interesting when you um i, I recently wrote an article um, about this on my on my blog when you go back in time uh to when SaaS first emerged um you there were no SDRs. It was like full cycle sales in the enterprise, right? And yeah. then you hit 99 into 2000, Salesforce is born, the word SaaS is coined, and then um, you've got you know SDRs coming into the mix because what you don't want are these full cycle sales guys doing all of the all of the lead processing and qualification. Yeah. Um, you, you want you want them in the field. You want them in the field out there selling as best they can up and down across if it's enterprise sales. But then, you know, as, as SaaS emerged, what you, what you saw was like really incredible products being built that were um, product led in their, in their growth strategy. And um, I think a lot of what has happened has, is that you've seen you, I mean, in the enterprise, it's pretty easy to justify an SDR, often a sales engineer, maybe something else. You can often justify that. The cost of sale can can typically sustain that, and and the payback period will still be uh, over the course of about still within about twelve months. As you come further down, the ACV or the average sale price begins to drop. It does get harder and harder. Um, in you know, in some companies, like you know. The, the, I think we've got we've got to a point. You know, you take a, a product that costs a few k a year. Like, do you really need SDRs in that role, or can you just have full cycle salespeople? Sometimes the, the the that friction point is just very difficult to to justify. But yep. in the background, what you have are fundamentals in the business that you know it's it's kind of growth at all costs. So so I think a lot of founders lose sight of those of those fundamentals um and i think the i think the 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 challenge for aes in that situation is like what is it you're actually doing and and how are you actually polishing your sales skills and, and are you improving as a as a salesperson because if all your because if what's actually happening is 
marketing is doing an incredible job to provision marketing qualified accounts or sales qualified opportunities. The SDRs are doing an incredible job to pretty much like have a deal on a plate for an AE. Then like, what is it an AE is doing? Right. Um, and if the AE doesn't have to do much, that might be fine by the AE, right? They're going to like hit their goal. They're going to smash their goal. They're going to hit hundred percent quarterly. They have eight quarters of hitting goal, goal after goal. But if they want to move company and they want to, step up maybe into the enterprise what they're going to find is there could be a huge chasm uh so they either um they either need to be in a company that understands that there's that gap and supports them with sales training and career development so that they that, so that that chasm doesn't exist um or they just need to figure they need to do some of that stuff uh some of that stuff themselves because you know you there is you know there is a there is a gap that's emerging there, I think. Um, and you're, you, you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of people that do want to step up in deal value, um, struggle and, 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 and take their time. I mean, and of course there's absolutely nothing wrong with product led growth or SMB firms, but the motion is really different as you move up. Um, and, uh, maybe, you, maybe you do want to stay down in the product led growth SMB kind of arena, which, um, is, challenging unto itself for very different reasons but if you do want to step up then you just need to be very sure that you're polishing your sales skills on a day-by-day basis and and not you know i understand you might be getting some tap-ins but you you know you need to spend the time um brushing up your your pure sales skills if you want to if you want to move up do most of the companies that you advise and work with are they mostly more high velocity uh are they larger enterprise deals maybe it's a combo but or or do you have a specialty that you kind of is your forte yeah good good question um i tested myself in a product-led growth firm called guidebook uh that was the firm that actually brought me to the us from from the uk for six years and we grew from 2 million to 15 million in arr and i really enjoyed it the culture of the company uh the product was incredible um the thing I found most challenging um, was the velocity. I think the you know the high volume sales is just not for for everybody. As, as CRO, um, I was just in awe of the salespeople that were and and the SDRs and the customer success folk that were just you know having twenty or thirty conversations with prospects and customers every single day. Wow. You know you know like that that to me is you have to be wired in a certain way to do that. And I was in awe of them every day, which meant, hopefully that meant that I was a good leader because I respected everything that they did. But I was always very transparent. I was like, there is, I, I could never see myself doing that as an individual contributor. It was just, it's just not the way my, my brain is wired. So the, um, and in fact, what I was trying to, trying to do in, in you know, a guidebook, and eventually we were successful in doing it to some extent was, the product was so good. I just saw big opportunities to move up market into the enterprise. I saw real application at scale with, with just you know minor degrees of separation of where the product was today. So I was, I was always trying to look for avenues into the enterprise. And what I discovered about myself through my career was I just really enjoy having conversations about disruptive new technologies in the C-suite. Um, even in publicly traded companies, it was, it's just an environment that I'm very comfortable in. Um, I read around my subjects a lot. I read S1s, I read shareholder reports. 
Um, I read all of the financial um, media, media. So I, you know, I'm really kind of hanging out with all of the CEOs and have been pretty much my whole career. So um, I love having conversations about technology that can move a share price. Uh, and um, so I'm na I naturally lean in that direction where, um, but I've been focused on SaaS, right? So um, where, where my, I would describe my forte as being is, yes, of course I can do um, and, and have done successfully um, growth of, a, of an SMB product-led growth company, but I, it's not my passion. My passion and my forte is really either starting a new line of business in a product-led growth or SMB firm that needs and wants to move into the enterprise or in early stage SaaS companies that have a focus on the enterprise. And for me, the enterprise is at least a 50K ACV, but probably more like 100K plus and into the millions. So, you know, I think something that as reps start to move into the enterprise, right, and they start to build their career and, and get to that point where they're sitting in the room with some pretty important people and they're talking about these six or seven figure deals, um, mm -hmm. that it's intimidating. And I think a, a key skill is having the executive presence to, you know, hold your own and be able to run that meeting, right. And be able to run that deal effectively. So it, it probably doesn't feel, it probably feels fun and like a big, you know, not a big deal for you because you've been doing it for so long and you've got the, the titles to match and there's kind of that like mutual respect there, but for, you know, an AE that's listening that maybe is considering or, or has, you know, started selling to the enterprise and maybe feels like their executive presence game isn't as strong as it could be. What, what tips would you give them? Yeah. So um, if I take a step back in time and I, and I, I recall my first interactions in the C-suite, I was like, I was shitting myself. I sweaty <laughs> palms. Like I would be up the night before, not sleep well. I mean, I get it, you know, uh, so I, I, I hear it and I don't want to be, I don't want to be an idiot about it and just, and suggest that that's not a real thing. It is, but you really, so there's, there's a couple of things you need to think about. The first is you have to find ways to control your emotions uh, because, you know, whichever way you cut it, like if you're not in control of your emotions going into these high powered, like you know, potentially pivotal meetings. And, you know, let's be clear about this in the enterprise one, you can make your year on one deal. You can make your year and then some on one deal, mm -hmm. but you can't go into these meetings thinking like that. You can't go into these meetings thinking, this CEO's all over Forbes. This CEO's always on MSNBC. This CEO is like a fucking god, a superstar. Like, you need to be going into those meetings thinking, this guy, this guy uses the bathroom every day, just like me. Uh, yeah. This, you know, this this guy has to change diapers every day, just like me. This guy, you know, whatever, anything that normalizes the person that you're going to meet is really, really healthy. And I advise anyone to do it. Now, whatever, whatever floats your boat, you need to find a way to, to j just um, get that conversation on a level. You're basically the same. You're both humans. You, you know, you, you know, you both do your stuff every day and that's, you need to get it on that level because the, that, that's how that person is thinking typically, unless they're an asshole like that, 
that person and they're probably not at that level like they they you know they they're not going to give you time unless it's going to be a good use of their time and they would have they would have thought about that so that's what that person will be thinking as well so you've got to you've got to you've got to find ways to just be calm and normalize the situation even if it's not even if it's not normal um that's one but if all you do is that and you go into that meeting then you're winging it yep. um and you can't do that you will get found out real quick so um there is so much information out there about both companies and people you just have to do the work and for me, doing the work was reading S1s, reading company reports, reading shareholder shareholder letters, uh, looking up the news on that company that has, you know, whatever has come out in the last two weeks. So I could be really, really contemporary. I had to have these really firm anchors that would build my credibility fast. So I would reference things in the S1. I'd reference something in the in the previous shareholder meeting that would relate to um, why this meeting is relevant or could be relevant. Um, but it was really just about, you know, creating rapport. I mean, the first level is like, is this person even going to respect who I am? You know, yep. so, um, and then am I calm and can I have a, because if you're starstruck, it's never going to work. So, you know, can I create rapport fast? How do I do that? I've got to build credibility. And that's both personal, both on a personal and professional level. Um, so I would do things like, I remember reading one CEO was like, he, I'd got to the point in my career about 10 or 11 years ago where I was leading, uh, leading a, a pretty successful company in, in London, but this was a big deal. And like, I was going with my guys, but I got to the point in my career where I stopped wearing ties. It's like, okay, I'll wear the suit, but I just, I'm not going to wear a tie. Sod that. Yeah. Um, but I'd read that this CEO, for some reason, he'd actually published an article that like he has deep respect for sales guys that try and sell him something if they're like if they're really well turned out. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why, but he made it very clear that if you're well turned out, like for him, it's like you're making a really big effort and he really values that. Yeah. If I hadn't done that research, I'd just turned up as I am now. And his first impression would have been different. As it was, I did the research. I turned up with a tie, and we get off on the right foot, you know. And, and all I, you know, I meet him for the first time, smile, shake his hands, and the first question I ask is, "I hear you like ties." <laughs> 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 and then he's like, straight away, he's like, he knows that it's, you know, he knows. I've diffused the situation because I've made a joke. He knows immediately. I've read that article. And he knows immediately that I've shown him respect by wearing a tie. And then I've broken the ice by having a conversation about where the tie is from. Yeah. And it was a nice tie. So we could, you know, so we did. We had a five, <laughs> 10 minute conversation about the tie. And then I'm on a level. And and I was with I was with, you know, guys earlier in their career and they're watching this. Um, and you know, we get off and we do a deal and you know, it's a good deal. Uh and we're still friends today, actually. The, um, if you're listening, Steve Robinson, I'll never, I'll never forget uh, reading that article. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Um, I, I wanted to touch on, you've made some pretty major uh, life changes in the last, uh, you know, what, half dozen or so years. I don't know exactly when you moved from the UK to the US, um, mm -hmm. but moving there, um, 
you know, going off of the, um, you know, the, the very nice W2 that I'm sure you've been receiving as a CRO uh, and going off on your own and doing, you know, a lot of different advising and, you know, investing and, and things like that. So maybe you could walk me through the mentality of, of uh, you know, after two decades or nearly two decades uh, of success now, mm-hmm. like taking more steps to continue to kind of put yourself in new uncomfortable positions. Yeah. Uh, good question. <laughs> yeah. My, I was about to say my, my wife has heart attacks every time that I, I make these moves, but actually she's ultra supportive. Look, I think the thing is, is like, I've just been a lifelong learner and I, I get, I get bored pretty quickly and uh, I'm, I just, you know, I'm really inquisitive and I'm prepared to challenge myself. So you know, moving to the US, we moved here. Um, I made the decision to move here when my uh, wife was six months pregnant with our second child. And at first, she thought I was joking at first, and then she realized that I, that I wasn't. And we made the decision to have the, uh, the, the, the baby in London and then come to the US uh, post the birth when, when he was uh, three months old. But we knew no one in the U.S. apart from the company that I was I was working for, um, and that was a huge move. Um, and we got to the U.S. and it was challenging because we couldn't find a school to put my daughter into that was um, that we thought was good for her. And so we made this decision for you know my wife to give up her career and become a single income family in the Bay Area. So anyone that is living in the Bay Area will know how difficult that is, whether you're a CRO or not. Um, and it was it was challenging. But, you know, the um, the thing is, for me, is like the Bay Area is, is if you're in tech, it's like the Premier League uh, of tech. I mean, yeah. like, so why would I, you know, I love London. It's like really my my hometown. Love it to bits. But if if I'm going to look back on my life and I'm going to, you know, have no regrets, you know, I need to to have given it a good shot in the in the mecca of tech so i'd been coming here for on and off for the previous 15 years anyway with my companies and every time i got back on that flight i was pretty sad i you know i'd get back on the flight and i was like wow i just i just love the energy and the vibe of the bay area yeah and um, there's just something about it there's just something about uh i know it gets a it gets a lot of flack nowadays um but there's just something about it. Um, there's just something in the water that has people thinking differently and believing in the impossible. And that, that always resonated with me. And I'm not saying in London and in Europe there, there isn't that, but it's just not to the level that it is here. So I, just, I was just intrigued. Like I, wonder, I wonder how I'll fare uh, if I go to the Bay Area. So that brought me here. And I have to say, I did not, it was strange. I got here and I just didn't skip a beat. It was like I'd, I, I'd never spent actually that much time in the city of San Francisco. I was always on the peninsula when I was coming over. Yeah. Um, but I had, I didn't skip a beat. Um, I, 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 lo- I loved it. Um, what I'd been doing in the background as a, as a sales leader was uh, in my company, uh, prior to Guidebook, Guidebook was the company that brought me here, my company prior to Guidebook, Maximizer, which sold for um, around 180 million to Oracle. Um, and then in my company post Guidebook, Wonderschool, which is an A16Z backed um, marketplace, uh, I had been 
um, I had been developing playbooks for my teams so that I could um, scale companies uh, successfully. And what I'd real so there's two there's one other uh, key 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 point of note here is every company I have joined I've had zero experience of the sector. So if you look at my uh, LinkedIn profile, every single company I've moved from and to, I've not had any experience in the sector. Um, and I've always believed that you should hire functional expertise over industry expertise. And I was proving that out. So I, I had been proving that to myself and proving it out in the field for a decade. Yeah. So when I, um, so when, you know, I helped turn Wonderschool around, uh, build a new line of business from zero to a couple of million dollars and a $10 million plus pipeline right in the heart of the pandemic. Um, so when I'd done that within 12 months, um, the reason I, I turned my back on the W2 and started my own boutique consultancy was really simple. I had worked out that the value that I was providing my companies, I could probably distill down to 10, maybe 15 hours a week of my time. And the rest of my time was spent in meetings that I probably shouldn't be in, doing things I probably shouldn't be doing, not in front of customers that I'd rather and should really be in front of, just doing things that I that really wasn't provisioning value for what I was hired to do. It yeah. was like, you know, it was, I guess it was like, you know, I, you know, if you hire and I want to like, <laughs> I want to use the right analogy so I don't sound like a douchebag, but I'm struggling. So, so I apologize. You can all call me a douchebag. But if you hire an F1 driver to drive an F Formula One car, don't get them driving a truck like yeah. in their spare time because they're not going to be happy about it. And that's the same for leaders, ICs, like get them focused on the stuff that really gets them going. Yeah. But it's the same across all companies, right? I'm not calling out any one of my previous companies. It's this, you see this across every single company. But what I'd done differently is I created these frameworks that I knew applied across different companies. And I was convinced that I could uh, um, provision the same value that I was getting paid a CRO salary for across three or four companies at the same time. And I tested this out. I tested this out doing uh, small side hustles with startups uh, pro bono for free. And then um, when I tried to stop doing those side hustles for free, those founders came back to me and said, no, 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 don't stop. This is your market rate. Like we would pay you this, would you continue? And, and um, when I did the math and then I added on the freedom and the desire to run my own company and all those other extra benefits that are somewhat intangible, it was just a complete no brainer. I'd actually make more money, um, but more importantly, I'd have the freedom to build my own company and you know, run things under my own steam. So I turned, when I turned to my wife and, and ran this by her, she was super supportive. Um, and then, yeah, so in, in March, April of, of this year, I, I went it alone and yeah, really fortunate to have four or five, maybe six or seven in the next couple of weeks, customers, clients uh, who are all doing diverse stuff from crypto to, you know, ed tech to enterprise software, um, all have the same problem. They all want to grow faster. They all want to move into the enterprise or they want to accelerate enterprise. Um, and I'm really proud to be by their sides, helping these founders, CEOs and sales leaders, um, get to where they want to get to. That's awesome. Um, 
Let me hit you with a few uh, rapid fire questions here, Wayne, before I, I let you take off for the evening. Um, so I see some, some books behind you. We're huge learners on this podcast. I'm curious um, if, if you have any books that either have been really impactful for you throughout your career or any good ones that you've read in the last six months. Any topic is fair game. It, it doesn't have to be sales related. But it yeah, oh, um, the book that had the biggest impact on my, there's loads of great books out there and I've got a few of them there, but this one, um, for those that are watching on YouTube, um, this Subscribe one on is, YouTube. <laughs> is proactive selling, selling by Skip Miller. Um, who's who I recently connect with connected. I was talking about like being starstruck. I was actually starstruck when Skip connected with me, accepted my connection on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, this book, I think he, I, I read it when he first um, published it back in the early 2000s. Uh, this was the book that made me realize I wanted to be in enterprise sales and wow. not in lower value sales. Um, so that was, that was a pivotal book. Um, buy it, read it. It's really powerful. Um, and then, um, yeah, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, like that age-old classic. I mean, there aren't many books that you can just pick up and every time you read it, you just like learn something new or you get reminded of something that's so impactful and so powerful. Yeah. If, you, if you're a sales guy and you haven't read that book or you don't have it on a shelf that you can reference like I have back there, I, 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 you're just selling yourself short. Like you, you can perform better if you have access to that book. So, mm. um, you know, get a hold of it. And a great read uh, and a fun read is the hard thing. Uh, the hard thing about hard things, I think it's called. Yeah. The hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. Um, I love that. Um, I love that book. Uh, he charts. Um, he he charts his time building building out his first company with Andreessen and. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much in that book that is uh, is just so awesome and cool. So yeah, that's a good one too. That's a great one. Um, all right, uh, Wayne, what is what's bumping through your your Spotify, your Apple Music playlist, wherever you listen to music? What what's uh, what's been going on in the headphones recently? Oh, music! Oh man, you've got me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I uh, okay. So I. That's a good question, actually. I thought I'd be stumped on that. Um, Metallica have released uh, okay. their Blacklist, which is Metallica. Metallica's album, Metallica, Metallica, was all covers. And if any of you haven't listened to Miley Cyrus's cover of Nothing Else Matters, like get out there and listen to it. Wow. That girl has the most incredible range on her voice. That is like... that. Um, she nails it man so metallica's wow. metallica the blacklist all covers uh but go listen to marley cyrus sing nothing else matters and then we've become big fans of this guy called the me and my wife have become big fans of this guy called the polish ambassador have you heard of him <laughs> no but i like the name <laughs> yeah he's like um he's this cool like house dj made a name for himself um at burning man i think he's okay. i think he's gone there a number of times uh we've we've never been to burning man uh we we want to go but his his music is very different to metallic i have very eclectic music taste um but yeah. we've been listening a lot to uh the, the polish ambassador 
I love it. We'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. Um, any other resources, uh, people that you follow either on LinkedIn or I don't know if you listen to other podcasts or, uh, yeah. YouTube channels or anything like that. Any other places that you go to, uh, to get your learning on? Yeah, I'm a huge podcast listener. I'm just actually looking at my, at my phone right now. Um, uh, and I'm big into crypto, so I, I listen to a lot of um, crypto podcasts. Hit me but, with the crypto uh, knowledge. Hit me with the crypto podcasts. Oh yeah, well, Decrypt Daily and the um, uh, CoinDesk podcast network. Yep. Those two, um, um, those two are the two that I listen to most. Uh, I, I'm big into invest. Oh, I'm big into investing. Obviously, big into startups. So um, this week in startups, the, the Calacanis. Jason Calacanis for yep. her show, the All In podcast, Chamath Sachs yeah. and uh, Freeberg and and Calacanis. That that's actually probably my favorite show right now. Um, they're, they're funny. They're, they're they are they are funny. Um, and then yeah, I mean a load of others, but those are the ones that I'm listening to. Oh, I'm actually I'm big into um, this guy called Ben Greenfield. Have you heard of him? Um, He's like the fitness big- guy, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of big into biohacking. This is an aura ring that you see on my ring. So I'm okay. I'm kind of big into like sleep tracking, diet, biohacking. Um, so Greenfield, he's an interesting character, but um, like there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff amongst all the other stuff. Uh, <laughs> so and then there's you, and you're there as well. So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. That's those are good names to be associated with. <laughs> yeah, I I mean. From a reading perspective, um, I mean, shameless plug, I have my own newsletter, uh, waynemorris.me, and I post a lot on LinkedIn, as you know. Sign up, I, people. Um, I, I care a lot about helping early stage founders not make the same mistakes that I had to make, uh, and early stage sales leaders not make the same mistakes that I make. I cross-reference a lot of the things that I'm doing in the field um with my companies and what i've done in the past with um venture capital guys who invest in SaaS companies and there's a number of good ones out there but um the 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 guy that i read that i feel like a lot of my stuff is so closely related to because it's enterprise and it's SaaS, and i do have a marketplace kind of bend on some of my experience as well is um david sachs from craft mm-hmm. ventures uh former, you know, co-founder, CEO of, of PayPal and CEO of Yammer. Um, I think he speaks an incredible amount of sense um, around SaaS. And whenever founders are asking for reference points other than my own, I often point them in, in his direction. I love it. Um, last question for you um, before we get to the last kind of stuff of where people can find you. Any, any favorite quotes or sayings or, uh, you know, life philosophies you live by, anything like that, that, that stands out to you? Yeah. Well, I have the, uh, Sun Tzu's art of war is by the way, one of those books. Uh, there we go. And th- there's an incredible amount of quotes in there. Most of which I struggle to, to recall, but whenever I'm looking for kind of life inspiration, I just flick through that and I'm just blown away. Um, but yeah, I have a few, um, you know, the life mantra that I live by is, you know, you are who you surround yourself with or, Mm. and, or you like, you become who you surround yourself with. And I think if people are more cognizant of that, they, 
you know, and really believe that they would, um, you know, they would, they would think again about some things they do and where they live and what they do. Um, and as a, an immigrant to the US now looking back on the UK with a slightly different perspective, I'd say, you know, if you get the opportunity to travel and live abroad, you know, live in a different place and you get the chance to like look back on where you've come from, I think that perspective is really, really healthy. So, um, so I'm a very big believer in, you know, you are who you surround yourself with. So when people say, you know, when all these people are leaving California and leaving the Bay Area, I'm always thinking, well, I need to be sure, like, who the people are I'm going to, I'm going to end up being surrounded by wherever, wherever I go, because whether I like it or not, I'm going to, I'm going to become them. Um, that's one. Another one is, um, I'm a, I'm a really, uh, I, I'm a really big believer in just, um, kind of being trustful of others as my default start point. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to second guess people when I meet them. Um, I, I'm really just, just trying to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt, uh, all of the time until of course I, I, I can't. I just think like that attitude means that you can get off to a quick start and, you know, see people for who they are really, 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 really quickly. And that just, I find that easier and it, and it serves me well. Uh, so that's, that's one. Um, I'm a really big believer in just treating people for who they are. So as a leader, you know, it's hard to like understand that Tom, you're like a unique individual that has your own unique things going on about you and I need to treat you uniquely when you're scaling companies I think that gets lost a yeah. lot with people um, but I think as a leader if you can figure out how to make the time for Tom and understand who Tom is at least like for 15 minutes every single week I think you know you're going to get paid back in in bucket loads if you can do that so i i try I, I try really hard to let people understand and feel that i recognize them for the really beautiful and unique individual that they are because i think that that really unlocks their creativity and their ability to get to another level and i just see i just don't see it happening that often i see people treated as cogs in a wheel as like moments in time uh, and my view is like well they're not actually you know they're humans that have a personal life and a career. And, you know, I, I'd love to be able to impact that positively because I care about my legacy and I care about them. So um, treating people as individuals is a big one for me. And related to that, um, there's the Maya Angelou quote that always comes up about, you know, people will never forget what you say or how you said it or what you did, but uh, sorry, people always forget what you say or how you said it or what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, if, it, if there's a better mantra to live your life by, I've not heard it, but like, you know, that's really, really important. You know, people, you can be forgiven all sorts of stuff. Um, and, but, but some things people just won't forget. So like really make sure that you understand that, you know, the way the way you make someone feel is of critical importance. And obviously in sales, like where is it more important? You now you can be forgiven. Honestly, in sales, you can be given forgiven all sorts of knowledge gaps. You can be forgiven all sorts of mistakes if you make people feel good. But if you have all of the knowledge 
and you know everything about your subject and you make people feel like shit, you haven't got a shot. You're screwed. Like so um so doubling down on that is is really important. That's great. Um Wayne, I, I appreciate you coming on, sharing your wisdom and your time. Uh, uh you know, certainly everyone should go check you out on LinkedIn. Uh it'll be easy to find you because you got the donut emoji uh up there in the headline. Um check let check out Wayne's newsletter, anywhere else that um folks uh should try to connect with you or, or learn from you. WayneMorris.me is my newsletter. My LinkedIn profile is a good place to go. Um, if you feel like having heard this, that you know maybe we should work together, then check out my website, WayneMorris.co. Co. Um, I'm not that active on Twitter, but I'm ramping that up. So Wayne, at Wayne G. Morris, um, you can find me there too. Awesome. Wayne, thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for checking out that episode of the Millennial Sales Podcast. We're in the home stretch, November and December of 2021. Let's close this on a strong note. Please make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening here. It'll help me grow this show and provide better content for you. Otherwise, hit me up on LinkedIn, Tom Alamo. I'll see you there. Peace.